Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Welcome back to our study of the Book of Romans from a Full Preterist Perspective. Last session, we surveyed the meaning of the word body, the Greek word soma, as Paul uses it here in his epistle to the Romans. The word body is used 13 times in the book of Romans, and we took a brief look at each of them to see what kind of body they were talking about, either collective or individual. In this session, I want to share a little bit of the history of how these body texts in Romans have been interpreted collectively by some of the other preterists, and I want to explain why I believe they should instead be interpreted individually. Let's ask God for his blessing on our study before we begin. Sovereign creator and sustainer of both the seen and unseen realms of this universe, We exalt you and adore you for saving us and shaping us to be your servants. Thank you so much for snatching us out of the spiritual darkness and manifesting your regenerating light to us through your word. Not only did that word become flesh, but now it is embodied in your inspired, eternally relevant, and absolutely authoritative written word. May your spirit illuminate our minds here as we study a portion of that word written by your faithful bondservant, Paul. Help us not only to understand it, but apply it to our lives in a way that will sanctify us, attract others to you, and ultimately glorify your holy name. We pray this in the name of your beloved Son and our glorious Savior, Jesus. Amen. Last time, I mentioned several books by both collective body advocates and individual body advocates that deal with this whole issue of the body here in Romans. Uh, We mentioned Max King's book entitled The Cross and the Parousia, John A.T. Robinson's book on the body, Tom Holland's book on contours of Pauline theology, Dave Green's House Divided book, as well as Robert H. Gundry's book entitled Soma in Biblical Theology, and several of the standard commentaries on Romans by Nigren, Moo, Schreiner, Morris, Hodge, and others. Last week I asserted that my study of these books had confirmed for me the utter impossibility of the collective body view being the correct interpretation approach here in Romans. This time, I want to provide the documentation for that assertion by interacting with some of those writers on both sides of the issue. As we noted, in order to understand Romans correctly, we need to know what Paul's definition of the word body is and how he is using it here in his letter to the first century Roman Christians. The best way to get a good understanding of his definition is to look at each of his uses of the word body in their context. We did a little of that contextual study last time, and I intend to do some more of it this time. So many cults, heresies, and defective theologies have resulted from a misunderstanding of the book of Romans, and that is the same thing 
that is happening now within preterism. Both the collective body view and the individual body view use the book of Romans as support for their respective paradigms. However, as we all know, both views cannot be right. So we need to be Bereans and search the scriptures to see what Paul was actually teaching here in Romans and then let that guide us in discerning truth from error in the various views within preterism. This time I want to look more at the history of how this collective body view was developed. All of the preterist collective body advocates that I'm aware of borrowed their collective body concept either from Max King or someone who borrowed it from Max King. But where did Max King get it from? He personally told me 35 years ago when I was visiting him at his home in Warren, Ohio, that he borrowed most of his collective body concepts directly from John A.T. Robinson's book on the body. A quick look at the footnotes in his big book, The Cross and the Parousia, easily confirms that this is true. Furthermore, one of the collective body advocates who has been in the movement for almost 25 years told me in an email recently that Max King's definition of the body is basically just John A.T. Robinson's definition of the body in certain places like Romans chapter 6. Reading Robinson's 83-page booklet on the body is like reading Max King. Even the style is much the same. After reading that booklet, there's no question that Robinson heavily influenced King on the word body. Moreover, Max King's son, Tim, who took control of Max's covenant eschatology ministry after Max retired, has reprinted Robinson's book on the body and said the following about Robinson's collective body concept. In the field of eschatological studies, no topic seems thornier than that of the resurrection, regardless of the particulars of one's perspective. A great deal of misunderstanding about the resurrection in preterist circles stems from our tendency to see the concept of body largely in dualistic terms that do not reflect Paul's way of thinking. This is especially true of Paul's discussions of the resurrection, and a recovery of the Hebrew understanding of body will go a long way toward a proper understanding of resurrection in first century corporate terms. To this end, John A.T. Robinson's 1952 classic book entitled The Body, A Study in Pauline Theology, is a valuable contribution to the literature surrounding transmillennial thought. One could say, without exaggeration, that the concept of the body forms the keystone of Paul's theology, contends John H. Robinson. Robinson's own eschatology does not embrace complete fulfillment, yet this quality reprint of this classic book in Pauline Studies provides the serious student a missing piece of the puzzle of Pauline eschatology. Now, that uh, quote from Tim King doesn't really excite me too much, but I thought it would be interesting for all of our listeners to know why Tim King and Max King evidently reprinted Robinson's book. 
It is clear that both Max and his son Tim, as well as other leading advocates of the collective body view, see Robinson's book as the primary source for supporting their collective body position. However, since Robinson was far astray in many areas of his theology, we need to examine his views a lot more critically before giving them any significant consideration. You will see why I say that when I read some of the quotes from Robinson's book and from others about what he really believed and what he taught. The first quote that I'm going to read is from Robinson's book, The Body. It's a good example of how Robinson uses his collective body concept to lead right into his universalism. It's interesting that one of the collective body advocates in an email exchange with me recently denied that Robinson used his collective body concept to support his universalism. He said, Robinson used his sacramental literalism, not the collective body concept, as the basis for his universalism, according to Holland in his Contours book on page 87. And the collective body concept does not necessitate sacramental literalism. Now, that's a good assertion to make, but I think this quote that we're going to read here shortly will prove that this assertion is not correct, that there is a connection between the collective body view and the universalism of Robinson. Notice the careful wording of this denial of a connection by this fellow preterist who takes the collective body view. While it is true that the collective body concept does not necessitate either sacramental literalism or universalism, it can be pushed to those logical extremes. And that is exactly what Robinson does in his book. He lays his collective body foundation first and then constructs his sacramental literalism as the framework on which to hang his universalism. Here is the progression of Robinson's argumentation. Number one, he develops his collective body concept, and then number two, uses that collective body concept to develop his sacramental literalism, and then uses both of those, the collective body view and his sacramental literalism, to support his universalism. The collective body guys want us to think that the universalism of John A.T. Robinson and Max King has no connection whatsoever with the collective body concept. But you would never get that impression from reading Robinson. Universalism was the ultimate goal that his whole book was focused on. The last two pages of the book prove it, as we will see below when I read those quotes. So it's disingenuous for our fellow preterists who take the collective body view to claim that there is no connection between the collective body view and universalism, when in fact Robinson goes to great pains throughout the book to lay the foundation for universalism by constructing both his collective body concept and his sacramental literalism first in order to make way for his universalism. We will see that this is the case when we read the following quote, which is taken from the last two pages of his book, where he summarizes the implications of all of his collective body and sacramental literalism 
arguments and pushes right on into universalism in his concluding thoughts. Here's the quote from the last two pages of Robinson's book. And as the Christian hope of resurrection is fundamentally social, that is, realized in the collective body, so it is inescapably historical, that is, the resurrection is a process, not an event, that is worked out inside history. It is a resurrection not from the body, but of the body. It is this very body of sin and death which transformed must put on incorruption. The building up of the church is not the gathering of an elect group out of the body of history, which is itself signed simply for destruction. It is the resurrection body of history itself, the world as its redemption has so far been made effective. The open consecration of a part marks the destiny of the whole. The mass of human existence, for all its sin, its destructiveness, its determinisms, is still soma, body. It is made for God, though it may have become conformed to the sarks or flesh and its end, that is not its true constitution as it has been created and redeemed in Christ. The church is at once the witness to the world of its true nature and the pledge and instrument of its destiny. Those incorporated by God into the body of his Son are to be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So Paul sees the redemption of the body begun in the eschatological community of the Spirit as the hope ultimately not only of all men, but of the creation itself. It is into the liberty of the glory of the children of God, into the resurrection mode of existence, of those who even now can be described as glorified, that all things are finally to be brought. This day has not yet dawned. It waits upon the revealing or unveiling of the sons of God, which is the same as the revelation of the Lord Jesus, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. But then the body of Christ will stand forth, not as it is now, a world within a world, but as the one solidarity, the restoration of the original image of creation, where there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bondman, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. That's taken again from Robinson's book on the body, pages 82 and 83, the last two pages in his book. Now, anyone who has read Max King's book will recognize some of the terminology that Robinson used in that quote that we just read, such as resurrection mode of existence. You ever heard that before? It's in Max's book and in all of his seminars that he uh, had in Warren, Ohio. He mentioned that resurrection mode of existence numerous times. The one solidarity that Robinson says here, I've heard Max use that idea of solidarity over and over and over again, not only in his book, but in his seminar speeches as well. 
Note also the highly glossed and nuanced language Robinson uses to teach his view of ultimate universal salvation. That is to say, the destiny of the whole. The hope ultimately not only of all men, but of the creation itself. The resurrection mode of existence. Glorified, one solidarity. Restoration of the original image of creation. Christ is all and in all. This is a clear example of how he used the collective body concept to construct, explain, and support his vision of ultimate universal salvation. It is not without significance that Tim King used some of this same terminology to support his view of comprehensive grace, which is nothing less than warmed-over universalism veiled behind an innocent-sounding sheepskin. That ought to send up a few red flags for anyone tempted to even consider Robinson's collective body concept. It leads right into universalism. It did so for John H. E. Robinson and many others who followed him, including Max King and Tim King, apparently. But universalism is not the only anti-biblical doctrine that Robinson uses the collective body concept to support. His book also argues for a sacramental literalism, and he argues his case for sacramental literalism in chapter 3, which is entitled The Body of the Resurrection, on pages 49 through 58 especially. The basic idea of sacramental literalism is that the collective body of the church not only represents Christ, but is in fact the literal, individual, physical body of Christ that both died on the cross, arose from the dead, and ascended. You might say, that is absurd, and that surely no one would be so dense as to believe such a thing. But it is not much different than the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, where they make that bread and wine into the literal body of Jesus. Here's how Robinson explains his sacramental literalism. But it is of great importance to see that when Paul took the term soma and applied it to the church, what it must have conveyed to him and his readers was, to employ a distinction which itself would have surprised him, something not corporate, but corporal. In other words, not collective, but individual. It directed the mind to a person. It did not of itself suggest a social group. Hence, as Professor A. M. Ramsey has well remarked, to call the church the body of Christ was to draw attention to it not primarily as a collection of men, but primarily as Christ himself in his own being and life. It referred as directly to the organism of Christ's person as his other language about the body of his flesh. Consequently, one must be chary or cautious or hesitant of speaking of the metaphor of the body of Christ. Paul uses the analogy of the human body to elucidate his teaching that Christians form Christ's body, but the analogy holds because they are in literal fact the risen organism of Christ's person in all its concrete 
reality. What is arresting is his identification of this personality with the church. But to say that the church is the body of Christ is no more of a metaphor than to say that the flesh of the incarnate Jesus or the bread of the Eucharist is the body of Christ. None of them is like his body. Paul never says this. Each of them is the body of Christ in that each is the physical complement and extension of the one and the same person and life. They are all expressions of a single Christology. It is almost impossible to exaggerate the materialism and crudity of Paul's doctrine of the church as literally now the resurrection body of Christ. The body that Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27 is as concrete and as singular as the body of the Incarnation. His underlying conception is not of a suprapersonal collective, but of a specific personal organism. He is not saying anything so weak as that the church is a society with a common life and governor, but that its unity is that of a single physical entity, disunion of which would be dismemberment. For it is, in fact, no other than the glorified body of the risen and ascended Christ. We are members of that body which was nailed to the cross, laid in the tomb, and raised to life on the third day. There is only one organism of the new creation, and we are members of that one organism, which is Christ. I don't know if I even want to read the rest of these comments. Uh, Bear with me, though. I'm going to go through them. He goes on to say, It is to be noted how uncompromisingly physical is the language in which Paul depicts Christians as going to to compose the resurrection body of Christ. This is particularly clear in the verse from Romans chapter 7 verse 4. They have been joined to another, even to him who was raised from the dead. The unity is much closer than the English words would suggest. For the metaphor, as the context shows, is one of sexual union. And its presupposition is that the relation of Christians to Christ is that of one flesh. They are fused in a single basar, or flesh in the Hebrew, They are fused in a single flesh, one flesh. This union is as exclusive as that of man and wife. In the same way as no clear distinction can be drawn between the flesh body of Jesus and the body of his resurrection, so there is no real line between the body of his resurrection and the flesh bodies of those who are risen with him for they are members of it. He says, Our concern here is with the doctrinal content which the term soma was used to clothe and express. And our contention is that Paul's doctrine of the resurrection body of Christ under all its forms is a direct extension of his understanding of the Incarnation. Then Robinson says, 
Further, the grounding of the doctrine of the body of Christ in the Eucharist does full justice to the emphasis on which we have insisted, namely that soma is to be interpreted corporally as an individual body, as the extension of the life and person of the incarnate Christ beyond his resurrection and ascension. Jesus is handing over to his followers till he come his actual self, his life and personality. Insofar then as the Christian community feeds on this body and blood, it becomes the very life and personality of the risen Christ. Then Robinson says, Paul also had seen the Lord in his risen body. Now, when we examine the narratives of this appearance itself, we find stressed in each account of Paul's conversion how the heart of the revelation which came to him was the fact that the church he was trying to stamp out was no other than Jesus Christ himself. Quote, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why persecutest thou me? And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. The appearance on which Paul's whole faith and apostleship was founded was the revelation of the resurrection body of Christ, not as an individual, but as the Christian community. In face of this, it would seem unnecessary to go further for an explanation of why the body of Christ inevitably meant for him what it did. As Professor Emil Mersch has put it, Since that day when he saw Christ in the church he was persecuting, it seems that he can no longer look into the eyes of a Christian without meeting there the gaze of Christ. Well, I think that's enough. You get the point. But I want you to see how he's building his case here for his concept that the church is literally the physical body of Christ. Not just represents it or is similar to it in some way. It is the body of Christ. He declares that it is the resurrection body that was laid in the tomb and raised to life on the third day. That ought to shake us up a little bit. It certainly sends up a few red flags for me. Well, Tom Holland, in his book on the contours of Apostle Paul's theology, noted that Robinson clearly taught sacramental literalism and gives a pretty good summary of it here in his book. He says, Robinson was able to make use of Bultmann's work to support a sacramental concept of the body of Christ. Robinson pursued what seemed to be the inevitable logic of the principle of Semitic completeness in the expression body. He argued that the ecclesiastical body of Christ is the whole Christ. Indeed, for Robinson, the body of Christ is Christ. Robinson argued that when Paul wrote of the body of Christ, as in Ephesians 5, verse 30, he was not intending that body should be understood as a mere simile. It speaks of organic unity, not only of the body, but of the body with its head. 
Robinson claimed that the concept is fundamental to the understanding of Paul's theology of the church. The church is not merely a body of people in subjection to Christ, but is actually the body of Christ. This is shown to be Paul's thinking, according to Robinson, in the accounts of his conversion. Jesus' question, why do you persecute me, demonstrates for Robinson the existence of an organic unity. In persecuting Christ's people, Paul was literally persecuting Christ himself. End quote from Tom Holland. Robert H. Gundry, an American evangelical scholar, not only took issue with Robinson's universalism and sacramental literalism, but also with the implications of his views for the resurrection of the dead at the parousia. Gundry noted that Robinson's collective body concept ends up denying a future resurrection for believers by teaching an already ongoing dying-rising process during the transition period. If you have read Max King's big book, entitled The Cross and the Parousia, this language about a dying-rising process, or dying-rising reciprocity, going on during the transition period, should sound real familiar. Max teaches that idea in his book. Robinson does not see the resurrection as an event at the parousia, but rather as a process already taking place before the parousia. It seems that Max King and the other collective body advocates use this same idea as the basis for their resurrection concept of dying, rising reciprocity going on throughout the transition period. And this idea effectively eliminates any resurrection of the dead ones out of Hades at the parousia. Notice what Gundry says about this. Insistence that physicality defines the very nature of membership in Christ's body runs into a variety of impossibilities. We have previously noted the impossibility of reconciling Robinson's view with the futurity of the death and resurrection or translation of Christians. In other words, he's saying that if they have already died and been resurrected as a part of or as the body of Christ, then their death and resurrection is already past. And therefore, all of Paul's resurrection texts don't apply to them if he's teaching some kind of a future resurrection because for them, the body of Christ, the death and resurrection is already past. Robinson's idea of physical fusion of their mortal bodies with the physical body of the risen Christ, over whom death has no more power, should automatically immortalize their present bodies and thereby put their resurrection in the past. The mere fact that Christians die, and did so in Paul's time, and that Paul carefully assigns the resurrection of Christ to the past, but that of Christians to the future, refutes this notion of Robinson. Well, that was a real quick summary there, and he says a lot more about this in his book. He's a futurist, of course, and so not all of his stuff is going to be good, but he does a good job of exposing the fallacies of Robinson's book. 
So I'd recommend if you're interested in pursuing a better understanding of how Robinson makes all of his errors, uh, Gundry does a good job of exposing that. Great book. You can find a copy of it on the Internet. The name of the book is Soma in Biblical Theology by Robert H. Gundry. Well, I want to spend just a minute here talking a little bit about what Gundry has said. Note the implications of Robinson's view, which Gundry has pointed out for us. He says in that effect that Robinson's collective body view necessitates the conclusion that the transition period saints already had their immortal bodies because their resurrection with Christ was already in the past. Thus, there was no hope for a future resurrection at the parousia because they had already been raised with Christ as his literal body when Christ was raised. Gundry shows that this is not just a possible implication of Robinson's view, but rather a necessary implication of it. Therefore, it's not surprising that several of the collective body advocates are teaching this idea of immortal body now, because it's consistent with what Robinson is teaching in regard to the collective body view. That's where this immortal body now, and heaven now, and perfection now is coming from, is from the idea that the collective body was already in the process of dying, rising with Christ in the transition period, and that there was really no future resurrection as such. It was just the completion of a process that was already begun in the transition period. Well, Gundry shows that it is a necessary implication of the collective body concept, and that it contradicts Paul's teaching of the resurrection as a future event at the parousia, not an ongoing process during the transition period. If some theologian has an incorrect understanding of the essentials of the faith, like deism, universalism, sacramental literalism, and secular theology, all of which Robinson held, he was a deist, a universalist, sacramental literalist, and a secular theologian. If some theologian has an incorrect understanding of the essentials of the faith like this, What makes us think his understanding of eschatology is going to be any better, especially when he uses his warped views of eschatology to support his universalism, sacramental literalism, deism, and secular theology? This is what John A.T. Robinson was doing in his book. It ought to send up a red flag in our minds when a fellow preterist teacher cannot find support for his resurrection view among conservative evangelical scholarship and has to resort to liberals, radicals, and secular theologians to find it. That is what Max King did. It ought to raise lots of red flags for us when we see that happening. Our concern must always be to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. Isaiah 8, verse 20. That's the problem here. Instead of looking at Paul's language in context and drawing Paul's meaning out of the context of Romans, he instead chose to go to some secular theologian a radical liberal, and pull his collective body view in to help him understand Apostle Paul. 
Do you see a problem with that? Man, I sure do. Well, there's so much more that could be said about John A.T. Robinson and his collective body concept, but we're going to save that for later. We've shown that there is a linkage between the collective body view and universalism. It may not be a necessary link or connection, but there is a connection nevertheless. The fact that both Max and Tim King are now universalist and using Robinson's book to support it speaks volumes about that linkage. Universalism is very bad fruit coming from the collective body tree. It certainly suggests the possibility that the collective body tree might be bad as well. Well, that's all I'm going to say about that at this time. Next time, we need to get back into the text of Romans and let Paul tell us in context what he really means, rather than letting liberal scholars tell us what they think Paul means. That's going to do it for this time. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.